So good morning, everybody. Glad you're here with us this morning. You have come, we're kind of in the middle of a short message series. We lost our lights. Oh, they came back. We're, we're in the middle of a short message series that we're calling Faithing It. And we're talking about faith not just as a belief system, but as a, a whole new way to be human in the world. So it's a living faith constituted by particular practices, things that we do with our bodies that have a direct impact on our souls and on each other, the world around us, even the, the trajectory of human life and culture. It was a few years back, I wrote a book called Shrink. And when I'm asked to come and talk about it, I always start in the exact same place with this, with this line. I say that our society is captivated by success. We, we just love success. In, in American society. In fact, the American story is all about these ragtag colonies defeating the British Empire, about manifest destiny and Western expansion, about settling the continent, rising up to meet every challenge and, and win and conquer and ignoring who we enslaved in order to do this or whose land we, you know, who, what races we eradicated to do it. We, we do whatever it takes to take our place as the most affluent and powerful country in the world. So America loves success, and we define success mostly as bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster. That's it. There's, there's actually this famous study. It's done every four years with the Olympics. I know I've told you this before, but it, it kills me. Um, they ask Olympic medalists, they, they survey all of them to see who is the most satisfied with their performance. And of course, the gold medal is always the most satisfied. But what's weird is the next most satisfied is never the silver. It's always the bronze medal. Because all the bronze medalists can think of is how close they came to not winning any medal at all. But all the silver medalists can think of is how close they came to winning the gold, but didn't, didn't get it, right? That's the power of success. It can turn an Olympic silver medal into a disappointing failure, you know? Second place in America is first loser. That's Tiger Woods, you saw I say that. If you were to, to kind of graph the American ethos, it would look something like this. It would go up and to the right. Success equals growth. Our culture drives us up and to the right. It doesn't really matter what we're talking about. The ultimate goal, goal is always bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster. And when I say it drives us, like I'm using that language carefully, we're driven we don't have even much choice about it. There's this pressure to succeed. It's just the air that we breathe and it's in our habits and practices. And as much as anything, this is a result of an unbridled capitalism and just an insatiable um, consumerism. It's capitalism that's, that's uncontrolled, unrestrained and, and dysregulated and it's driving this insatiable consumerism that just cannot be satisfied. It always wants more. It has, you could say, no concept of enough. Unbridled capitalism, insatiable um, consumerism, these, these dominate the cultural imagination and they really function sort of like a quasi-religion, uh, more than like economic ideals. In, th in theology, it's interesting, we have this word we use sovereignty. Have you heard of sovereignty? It's like a, um, it just means ultimate authority, the ability to determine 
the truth or events or, or lives or history or reality. And the sovereignty of God is like a standard Christian doctrine that God is ultimately in control. But in our society, um, it's much, there's much more actual sovereignty um, held by things like science, medicine, technology, or just the individual person. But the ultimate sovereign in American life is the free market. We put our faith in free markets to protect us, to determine the value of everything. Free markets tell us what's worthy of our time, our investment. They determine the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. They determine our actions. They demand our allegiance. And in the sense of ultimacy, we grant to the economy is religious. I mean, there's a sense in which the only true official religion in America is capitalism. It's the one true thing you're not allowed to question. That's sovereignty. And then the best way to, you know, get canceled or to be declared an enemy of the state or discounted as a radical is to blaspheme capitalism. That'll get you silenced and marginalized. So this will go on YouTube and that'll be the end, right? It, most people might call themselves Christians, but if we're talking about a living faith constituted by actual practices, most Americans worship wealth and affluence with their tithes and offerings and time and attention. And I'm not talking about somebody else. I'm talking about me and us. And free markets as the sovereign God who can make them safe and happy and, you know, the invisible hand like the spirit guiding everything. We place our faith in the economy and it tells us what to live for, what to die for, even what to kill for. Now, there's a sense in which this, um, this is just the way of empires in the world. All empires down through history are chasing up and to the right with everything, chasing growth without limits. They're always, you know, there's always some empire, some sovereign, some system trying to determine people's lives, constricting them into service of up and to the right. It's, it's just that in our time, the name that you give this system is capitalism. And it's unbridled. It has just total sovereignty to determine lives. And it accomplishes this um, largely through this insatiable consumerism that, and this quasi-religious worship, um, not of a thing. You know, c consumerism doesn't worship a thing or things. It worships the more, more, more. And this religion has its own liturgies. And they're enacted through media and advertising. It's its own um, habits, rhythms, and practices that are shaping its members into faithful producers and consumers. And a person's value in society is tied to how much they can produce and then conspicuously consume. We, we just say things like, how much is he worth? How much is she worth? And the more income you generate, the more you consume, the more value you have. And most of the rhythms of American life are intended to maximize production and consumption and just keep that graph going always up and to the right. Even our morality and ethics, what we think of as good 
or worthy or right and wrong is highly inflected by this drive to maximize things like productivity, efficiency, optimization, and convenience. Those things are moral goods now. They're worthy pursuits. In fact, it's okay to just wreck somebody else for the sake of those things. And the habits of our cultural life, they drive us toward these, toward productivity, efficiency, toward the optimization of life, toward greater consumption and production. And the important rhythms of life in our society are, are things like annual bonuses and quarterly reports, yearly cycles of roles and goals and planning and ranking and incentivizing. And of course, the most prized path to success in all of this is the one that's quick, easy, and, and painless. The rhythms we protect really are the ones that produce immediate results for us without requiring kind of any sort of genuine change or making too many sacrifices or even just being inconvenienced. And so we go for, you know, life hacks, self-help. We want quick, easy, and, and painless. And if, if we have to make any sacrifices, they better have a high ROI, you know, return on investment. And the entire goal of this whole situation is more. However you define that, just more. No matter how much we have, we want a little bit more. And so there's, there's a rhythm to our culture and, and to every empire down through history that drives its members toward this, up and to the right. And those who pursue it can achieve great things, but they pay a very high price which is essentially that human lives become consumed in the service of empire. The empire of bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster. And, and in this, the American empire is, is no different than any other empire down through history. It always wants more. It wants expansion without limits. Now, plopped down into the middle of the empire of his own time, Jesus talked about a different empire. He called it the kingdom of God, the government of God, whose ultimate goal is not success, but faithfulness. And it's all about enabling people to become human as human is intended to be by God. And, and this kingdom isn't like any of the stuff we just kind of talked about. It, it operates in, with a completely different economy that assigns equal value to every human life. It doesn't rank people according to their capacity to produce or consume or in, in some other way that, that lets them have an advantage like race, religion, status. And it's not about consuming, it's about being, cultivating a way of being. And in doing this, it disregards things we are taught to value like personality, charm, Drive, ambition, net worth, followers, clicks, likes. And, and in our time, I think the, the kingdom of God really could not be more different than the kingdoms of this world, the, the empire of more. It's, it's just the polar opposite. And in the most basic terms, if you were going to try to graph the kingdom, it would look something like this. Because like this, this is the rhythms of nature. 
This is your heartbeat. This is your breath. This is the tides. This is the seasons. This is evening and morning, the first day. This is waking and sleeping. This is working and resting. In fact, all living things go like this. You know what goes like this? Dead stuff. <laughs> and you can like prop it up on an angle. It's still dead stuff, right? <laughs> and part of why things live is because they go like this, because they're not chasing growth without limits. They recognize limits are good. Limits are productive. And sovereignty here resides in the creator and the sustainer of the cosmos, in God. Because the creator sets the terms for creation and sort of embeds them within the, the rhythms of nature that go like this. But in this strange twist, the creator doesn't hoard sovereignty. Like lording it over people and leveraging it for maximum control. God actually lays down sovereignty continually choosing to share it with human beings, just inviting humanity to have a say in reality, a say in how the world goes, just for the sheer delight of sharing it. It's, it's like the joy of having kids, you know? You just want to share, share your lives with them and, and you give them freedom to have their own successes and their own failures. That's how God treats sovereignty. And to do this, God ends up just making God's self weak at the point of encounter with humanity. And so when God shows up, it doesn't look like conquering armies and vanquishing heroes. It looks like Jesus, tender and gentle and merciful, always looking out for the least and the last and the lowly. That's, that's the kingdom of God that, that Jesus came preaching and embodying and extending to all humanity. And it really caught hold in this little band of his followers, and, and, and his movement carried, was carried forward down through the ages and comes all the way to us here in America in the year 2023, where we're living in the kingdom of, you know, bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster. And you guys, it's nearly impossible to live here without having our imaginations and our habits constantly shaped by the American religion of, you know, unbridled capitalism and insatiable consumption by the liturgies of optimization and efficiency and convenience and the values of quick, easy, and painless and the relentless pursuit of more, 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 more. And this is a real problem. There's kind of a clash of kingdoms going on here. These two diametrically opposed ways of entering life. And they're contending um, for humanity and the future of creation. And what God has done with the people of God in light of this, just all throughout history, is to try to counteract the powerful religions of empire. And, and the way that God does this is to offer people an alternative way to organize their common life. God gives them new habits, rhythms, and practices that are meant to kind of subvert and undermine the empire of more. So God hands people like very specific practices that, that over time will lead them in a different, into a different reality. 
whose goal is not success, but faithfulness, that doesn't drive people so much as it just calls to us, waking us up to God's faithful presence with humanity in the midst of life. Not to help us win, but to help us share life together. And not to conquer others, but kind of to learn to conquer the self. Not chasing bigger, better, higher, stronger, and faster, but paying, paying close attention to small things, you know? Foolish things. Broken, weak, and wounded things. And the result of these alternative practices will not be growth without limits. The result will be enough. Enough for everyone. A condition which the Hebrew people named shalom, peace. Everything rightly ordered, rightly relating. But God does not drive us toward this. God does not coerce or compel this. God simply loves people into this new reality. Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. And and you're free. We're all free to sort of take it or leave it. And so the way that the kingdom works to sort of, the kingdom of God works to counteract the kingdom of more, the empires of more, um, and all of the, you know, habits, rhythms, and practices of late stage consumer capitalism, the way, way it does this is to advance itself, not through like all-out war. It's not like a Napoleonic advance of strength against strength. These practices are deeply subversive. They just disrupt things, the normal order. But indirectly, they work kind of like sabotage to weaken and undercut and disorient the empire of more, to sort of knock it off balance and expose it, eroding its influence until it no longer has any real traction among the people of God. You guys, this is, a, this is a key concept that most American Christians totally miss because they're just conditioned to see only power and dominance and war and winning. And, and so they want Jesus to be like that. And so they twist the Christian story and, and torture the scriptures to give themselves what they long for, which is kind of the Jesus of empire. And this does not exist. It's, that's a contradiction in terms. The way of Christ is antithetical to empire. But the way of the kingdom is always subversive and disruptive because it, it doesn't want to destroy its enemies. It wants to win them as friends. As, as patiently and lovingly, it just sort of weakens the empire's hold on people's lives, offering these new practices that can slowly over time open them up and liberate them to embrace and embody this whole new reality and this whole new way to be a human being in the world. And God's way of doing this is just these simple habits, rhythms, and practices. That, that all, you know, at first blush, they almost seem too weak to do any good. But over time, they might just be the most powerful things we ever encounter. And there are two practices in particular that are aimed directly at unbridled capitalism and insatiable consumerism. 
and the hold they have on the human imagination. And these two practices are Sabbath keeping and tithing. Two, they sound like so churchy and lame, you know, but they're, they, these are the stuff of radical revolutions, Sabbath and tithing. Two of the first practices ever given to the people of God. In fact, the first Sabbath, as we read earlier, was observed by God on the seventh day of creation. God stops working, looks around, and just takes delight in all the work that God has done. I, I really think, actually, that the word delight is the best English synonym for Sabbath. It's just a day to stop being so restless and anxious and just to delight in the goodness of being alive. And part of why this is so subversive to empire is that in the economy of empire, Sabbath is like the waste of a perfectly good day, you know? with activities that add no value to your bottom line. And so the day is sort of lost to the economy. And so it doesn't last in that economy. But in the economy of the kingdom, Sabbath is the investment of an entire day in activities that add depth to your soul, you know, to that of those around you. And, and in that way, the day is actually preserved because its impact lasts forever in you and in this community. We know from history that most um, ancient Near Eastern cultures had some sort of Sabbath practice, one or another, with one notable exception, and that's the Hebrew people who were enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. And they had to work seven days a week, which meant they couldn't be human as God intended human to be. And this is, you know, the impetus. This is why God delivers them out of Egypt and then immediately tells them, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Holy is um, kadosh. It means, in, in Hebrew, it means um, set apart for a specific purpose. And that purpose of Sabbath is delight. And just in the goodness of what it means to have a life, to be awake and alive in the world. And so, and just in doing this, just in delighting, Sabbath is a form of resistance through non-participation in just the, the normal economy of empire. Just for one day a week. We arrange one day. So, so we're not generating anything, really, just not being productive in any measurable way, and so we're just not participating in the, in the economy of empire. Now, the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, he, he says that on the Sabbath, there is no compromise. And he doesn't mean like, in a, like the strict rules of keeping Sabbath, you know, that, that we've heard about. He says no accommodation to economic realities. That's what he means by no compromise. It really is a wholesale requirement for a healthy human community that the cycle of production and consumption and work simply has to be broken. I mean, we have to work. We have to, to do these things. But for one day a week, we just we step out. We just, it's non-compliance. It's, it's non-participation. And, and what then it teaches us is to, instead of leverage day for gain, it teaches us to just receive the day as a gift from God. Just, just delight in the gift of the day. 
And if we can learn to receive the day, maybe we can start to learn to see our whole lives as a gift. And it's not just um, about the cessation of, of work. Um, it's really about the cessation of the restlessness, you know, that drives capitalism and consumerism. Um, drives us towards production and consumption. Just one day a week, we check out of all that noise and give our attention, our time and devotion to activities that are human and humane and humanizing, that connect us sort of to our own souls, you know, and to the souls of each other and, and to the world, to nature even. And so Sabbath, it isn't just about not working or not doing certain things, although it involves that. It's really mostly about intentionally engaging in life-giving activities. I mean, I often say that a good Sabbath practice is just anything that, that gives you life, brings you joy and delight. And the best practices for Sabbath are, are communal. They're done with friends. And they, they're just things that connect us to sort of the hidden depth of things that we often overlook on normal days. But in Sabbath, we're taking delight in everything. And so we see them, right? We notice the goodness. We give thanks for it. And it's never meant to be a burdensome law. I remember when Jesus was walking through the fields eating the grains of wheat, and he's like, look, Sabbath, it, we're not slaves to the Sabbath. It's not, the, it's there for us, there to help us. So it's not burdensome. You can really just make it into your own thing. Make your own way of observing Sabbath. You know what you love to do, what brings you delight. Do that stuff. But it, but it often will need to, and in our tradition, it has involved a, a few things. The main one is worship. I'm gathering with our community to tell the story of God. We'll talk more about that in, in later weeks. But it also, it needs to involve things like, you know, great food and fun and celebration. Things that bring you laughter, that feed friendships. It's taking long walks, having long conversations. It's taking a nap, playing with your kids. Read a book, go to a museum see a film, see live music, play your own music if you're a musician. And if you're not, you know, there's ways. <laughs> Learn new things, play games, play sports, just play. Whatever play means for your, you, do that. Eat a meal with friends. This, is, this one is huge. Sabbath for the people of God has always involved feasting together on that day. This is, it's a huge Sabbath activity to share meals together. And then when you eat, chew your food, taste it, like take the time to enjoy it. Don't just, you know, consume it, delight in it. And I, I think it, Sabbath is a great day for community groups. And it's one of the things, one of the reasons I love our roundtable discussions. It's just the people of God getting together and and just talking about life and, and the hidden depths of everything. Sabbath is for intentionally deep conversations. It's for, it's for all the stuff you're like, man, I just don't have time to do that, but you want to. That's your Sabbath stuff. And there's a, there's a, a kind of patience to it, you know? You sort of let the day come to you. And you, only, you do nothing unless it's like, no, this is going to be great. And in this, Sabbath kind of 
reaches up to God and also out to neighbor. And you end up doing a lot of stuff you do on normal days. You just do it in different ways and toward a different end, you know. It's done with delight toward receiving and with gratitude. I really think Sabbath keeping, you guys, should be the central practice for Christians. The world is just caught up in the mindless pursuit of more and and productivity, efficiency, optimization, convenience. It knows nothing of the concept of enough. And chasing, you know, life hacks, techniques for immediate results. And, And to the extent that, like, most people kind of cultivate restlessness on purpose because it drives us to succeed. And how, how, how will people be free from this if we don't embody a better way? And if our kids grow up caught in that same rat race, like chasing their tails and worn out and frazzled, we, we will have failed them as a church. Sabbath is a training ground, right? It's where we learn to, to uh, what keeps us human. And, and those who don't engage in Sabbath will soon forget who they are will forget what it means to be human. And so I think it's essential practice. And, and you really are, you guys, you're free to just figure it out for yourself. Give yourself permission just to take one whole day and do nothing but things that bring you delight together. The second practice, real quickly, is, is tithing. Tithing, the word literally means tenthing. It's giving 10% of our income to our church community. It's sometimes tithing is used loosely, loosely to indicate like the giving of any financial gift, but it's not. Like giving $10 a week on an $80,000 a year salary is not tithing, it's like tipping. <laughs> tithing is tenthing. 10% of our income right off the top, and not like finding 10% and then parceling it out to different causes that we agree in, in ways that give us social credibility and keeps our money under our control. Tithing is about losing control financially. It's giving away 10% off the top. And this ends up doing all these great things to us. Tithing um, teaches us gratitude because it's, it's this way of saying, I, I know all of this comes from, from you, God, and I'm grateful. And instead of like looking at my paycheck and thinking, look what, look what I did, um, we'll remember that this is a result of so many divine gifts and things I didn't earn. They're just given to me that made it possible. You know, all the opportunities, talents, um, abilities, so many things I didn't generate have made it possible. And tithing is this way of saying, I know this. I'm connected to that. And I'm returning this to the source here as an act of worship. Tithing also keeps us from treating money as a god. Jesus went right at this. He said, you cannot serve two masters. And then in case they wanted to make about something else, he's like, you cannot serve God and money. Like he just made it explicit. And money, the reason he does this money is just a really harsh God that will consume us body and soul if we let it. And I I really think um, the way I think of it in my mind is tithing is like snipping one link in a chain that 
um, has kind of has us tied, tethered to a rock that is dragging us all to the bottom of the ocean. That's what tithing is. This is, you know, freeing us from what's killing us. And it's through kind of non-participation in the economy of empire. I mean, if the empire could, could find a way to ban tithing, it would, because like, it wants that money to stay within the empire, and you're wasting it. It doesn't even get taxed once you give it to us. And all this works kind of to actually emancipate us. It's, it's weird from, from the God of money. Tithing also, this is a, a deeply um, Jewish belief. The Hebrew people think that it makes, tithing makes all your time at work holy. So f- for them, giving the 10% has now made the other 90% holy. And then they also, they back it up on work. So they say, like, if you tithe, then one-tenth of your day or one day every 10 days is spent working for the, the community, the, the people of God, the church. So it makes your vocational life holy. And then, lastly, tithing tethers our hearts to, to the church. Another thing Jesus said about, about money, he, he said, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. So there's like a, a cord that runs between your heart and your treasure. And wherever you throw the treasure, your heart has to go follow. It's not a choice. It just does. And, and so throwing that rock toward the church tethers your heart to the church, to the people of God. It's just one of the intrinsic powers of money. Wherever you throw that rock, your heart has to follow. And so if you feel kind of half-hearted toward church, you're probably throwing your money a lot of other places. You start throwing your money here, and I'm like, I'm not picking, making a pitch for, for your cash. Like, we're fine. God always has provided for us. I'm just saying, wherever you th- throw your, your, the rock, you know, your heart has to, has to follow. These things, obviously, they're not the only thing that, that tithing does, but it does do these. It teaches us gratitude. It kind of undermines money as God. It, it makes all of our vocational life holy, and it, it really does tether our hearts to the, the people of God. And these things, man, these are deeply subversive to the empire of more. You think about these two practices, Sabbath-keeping and tithing. And they really seem like, you know, archaic religious nonsense in today's day and age, in our economy. You know, just wasteful activities that make no sense. And that's exactly what the empire of more has kind of shaped us to believe. But I would encourage you to just try them for a while. Just take a year. Try Sabbath keeping and tithing. See what happens. My guess is that you'll feel a lot more free from the economy of empire. You'll be more healthy and alive and in tune with God itself and other and creation. And you'll know more about who you are and what it really means to be human. And you'll also be a source of light and life and hope and goodness to your friends and your family and your neighbors and your co-workers. And these are, these are not religious 
obligations. You do not have to do them unless you want to be free from the empire of more. And if you want to be free of the empire more, you will find these are essential Christian practices. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, this idea of liturgies, of habits, of practices that you've given us and, and that are meant to make us free in the world. And we know we have to, I mean, we're living in a real world and we have to participate in a real economy and that's our life. But we pray that you would teach us to take one day a week, one chunk, like a real chunk of our earnings and just, just burn it as an offering to you. Just spend it lavishly so that we can act as free people in the world. And then let this have its impact on us. Let it shape our imaginations. Let it restore our relationships to ourselves and to each other, to you and to nature itself. We thank you for the wisdom of these teachings. Amen. Invite you to stand, please. And um, we're going to receive communion now. And the reason we do communion, or actually, the way we do it is the ushers will come forward and release us row by row. And you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. And what you do is just take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. It's called intinction. And then receive it. And as you do this, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable. And the reason we do this is that on Christ, last night with his followers, he, they were eating a meal together, and he took one loaf of bread and one cup and made them all share in the same little bit. And um, after they had done this, he said, this is, this is a symbolic thing I want you to do from now on. And, and this bread is like my body, and this, this, um, the cup is like my blood or my life. He said, whenever you gather, take my life into your life. Like, be made out of the stuff I'm made of. And then go out and be my hands and feet in the world. He said, every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And so this is why we receive communion each week. I know it's kind of a, like a weird little practice, but it's like tithing or, or um, um, Sabbath keeping. It's just this little symbolic thing that goes to work on our imagination. It teaches us who, who we are. And so um, if, if you would come join us in this, and this is part of why we don't put any limits on it either. Like everybody's, everybody's a ragamuffin at the communion table, you know. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can join us in this. And be, before we do, though, will you join me in a prayer and let's bless the elements. God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive them into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness.
to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?